going to talk tonight about the resurrection. And uh, I don't know if you think about the resurrection very much. We tend to think a lot about the cross and talk about the resurrection sometimes as proof that, you know, the cross worked or that he really did what he said he would do. We don't talk a lot about the ongoing implications of the resurrection, but I I hope that we'll get into some of that tonight. I, I remember being profoundly aware of how little I understood the resurrection. This was actually, or even the practical significance of it, Um, once when I was serving as a volunteer at Vacation Bible School. This was many, many years ago. And they decided to put me at the little station with the empty tomb, which was like a tent that they kind of had tried to decorate to look like an empty tomb. And I I remember trying to explain to like little kids, like what was the big deal about the empty tomb? And I remember at one point saying something like, well, it means that he's still alive and so he can hear you when you pray. And thinking, yeah, there's, I think there's more to it than that. Um, I, I don't know about you all if you've ever thought, you know, I'm a Christian, so I should believe in the resurrection. We just sang about it. Um, but I'm not really sure what difference it makes. Like, you, we talk a lot about the difference that it makes that Jesus lived and died in our place. What difference does it make that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now, tonight, I, I want to make sure to talk about it from this vantage point, you know, if, if I was talking to somebody about Christianity and about why you can believe that it's actually true, that it actually happened, I would probably start with the resurrection. I really would. Because the resurrection is really the key, maybe you would even think the missing piece that ties in the hopes and expectations of the Jews, and the faith and the preaching and the message of the early church. If you want to understand how did we get from Judaism to Christianity, the resurrection is that key. There's no other plausible way to explain the message proclaimed by the early Christians. There's no other plausible way to explain their own faith or even the continued existence of the early church at all without the fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. It's that important. So let's read from John chapter 20. That's where we'll look at. I'll probably will make mention to things that are mentioned in the other Gospels as well, um, rather than just sticking to John 20. But John 20 is a good place to to look at the basic story. This is after Jesus' death, after he's buried in this tomb. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John himself who's writing, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Isn't that amazing? That's one of those little details that makes you like really confident that the guy who's writing this stuck that in there. You know, that's just not the kind of like religious thing that you would stick in there, is it? It's just happened, and you want to make sure you do. 
So the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Sorry. Um, He saw the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know, you read this passage, and it's fascinating. There are these details that seem to be obviously eyewitness details that don't add anything really to the main point. They're almost like throwaway details, except they happened. And the person who was there is just filling in some of the details. When he thinks about the story... He remembers those things and he throws them in there. And then there's also just these details that when you know some of the early false beliefs that confused some Christians, some of the theological debates that happened in the early centuries, you look at this and you're like, man, they should have left this out or left that out because it was able to be misinterpreted. And yet you don't have that. You actually have things in here, like one of the early church um, false beliefs that, had, that grew up around the uh, second century, about a hundred years after this happened, was the idea that Jesus wasn't a real man, that he was just a spirit, that he was a ghost, right? And the church said, no, that's not, we know, we like, we touched him, held him, with our own hands. Peter says this in one of his letters, right? And yet, if you were trying to avoid that confusion, you wouldn't have included this story about Jesus appearing in a locked room. Like, they don't explain how. You ever wondered how? They don't explain how Jesus appears in the locked room. 
He has a body. He's not a ghost. They think he's a ghost, but he's not. And yet he appears in a locked room. And they don't explain how. That is the kind of detail that shows you that they're telling the story the way it actually happened. This account does not bear the marks of having been carefully crafted and worked out. It bears the marks of, no, this is just what had happened. Now, to, to understand something about why the resurrection is such a big deal, um, and, and why I say that it really is the only plausible explanation to get from Judaism to early Christianity, you need to understand a little about the context of the first century world and Judaism. Now, a lot of times I hear people throw around ideas like, well, a lot of people believed in resurrection from the dead. There are other things. There was ideas about Ciro, you know, Nero you know, rising from the dead and all these kinds of contemporary ideas. Well, there's a guy named N.T. Wright, a brilliant New Testament scholar, wrote an 817-page book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, it's an amazing read um, where he basically goes through the evidence of every contemporary idea both Greek, pagan, mystery religions, Judaism. He examines all this stuff. And, and here's basically what, what he says that I, I think is really important for us to understand. So some of the Jews, by the time of Jesus, had come to believe in a future resurrection. You may look in the Old Testament and be like, well, where's this stuff about the resurrection? It's not super clearly laid out. Matter of fact, the best way to think of it is in the Old Testament... The gospel is concealed, and in the New Testament, it's revealed. It, maybe you could think of it as in the Old Testament, it's like the bud, and then in the New Testament, you see the flower. So the idea of a future beyond death is certainly there, but it's more like tantalizing hints. Nonetheless, there were many Jews who by the first century had kind of worked it out and realized, you know, there will be a resurrection. What, what they believed was that there would be a bodily resurrection. The Jewish hope was always a bodily resurrection. Physical resurrection of the dead. They believed it would be everybody and it would be on judgment day. That's what the Jews believed. They believed a bodily resurrection, that it would involve everybody, and it would happen on judgment day, the final day. That's what the Jews believed. The word resurrection is only ever used by Jews to refer to a bodily resurrection. There's no doubt about that. You can, if you want to take that up with a professor or somebody you, you know, you've read an article online disputing that, tell them to read N.T. Wright, 817 pages. He lays it out in the most definitive way that you can, right? It was not a word that the early Jews or the early Christians ever used to speak about like Jesus coming alive in our hearts or Jesus kind of going off to some spiritual cloud somewhere, and now we can kind of have a spiritual communion with him. The word never is used that way by Jews or the early Christians, right? So when the early Jewish Christians, which are primarily all the first century Christians are Jewish, all of those folks, when they talked about Jesus being resurrected, they meant bodily resurrected. How about the non-Jews? Well, for a lot of the non-Jews, they had these Greek ideas, right? The Romans had adopted a lot of the Greek ideas, and the philosophers had these ideas. Many of them believed in Plato's idea that the soul would eventually be released from its bodily prison. 
In Greek philosophy, which was really kind of the, the, what a lot of the, the people believed in these days, um, the body was not seen as a good thing. The body was seen as a bad thing, as the part that kept your pure soul imprisoned. And so they looked forward to the soul being set free from its earth suit or its bodily prison. There's still Christians that talk that way, actually, uh, unfortunately. It's not Christianity, but it gets, it gets equated with Christianity way too often. But that was the Plato's view, right? Um, and so the idea that a body would be resurrected was abhorrent and ridiculous to the non-Jews. The Jews believed in bodily resurrection, but they believed it would happen to everybody at the end of time. The Greeks believed that no way would the body be resurrected. The body is the problem. So, you know, the future, if there's any future we look forward to, it's the body uh, finally being rid of the body. So here's what you got with the early church. What does the early church teach happened to Jesus? They say that he was bodily resurrected, but him alone. So what you have is this idea that the early Christians are going around talking about is that you have a bodily resurrection. It's an idea of resurrection that is firmly in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish understanding, bodily resurrection, yet it's got this huge, significant difference. It happened not on the end day, the end of all time, and it happened to one person. Oh, by the way, he was our friend. These Jewish monotheistic people are going around saying one of our friends is God and he was bodily resurrected. That's what they're saying. So here's what N.T. Wright says. We're left with the conclusion, because what he's saying is you have this, this teaching or this belief of the early church that fits within the Jewish kind of story, but it has this radical difference. He says, we're left with the conclusion that the combination of the empty tomb and the appearances of the living Jesus form a set of circumstances which is itself both necessary and sufficient for the rise of early Christian belief. Without these phenomena, without the empty tomb and without the resurrection appearances, we cannot explain why the Christians would have come to believe in a bodily resurrection of one person before the end of time. We can't, we can't make sense of the early Christian belief and the shape it took. With them, we can explain it exactly and precisely. Remember, the disciples of Jesus were not expecting a bodily resurrection of Jesus either. It's clear in all of the stories. When the tomb is empty, they're like, ha, it happened just like he said. That isn't what they think at all. Mary's weeping because she thinks somebody stole the body. And that's a really big deal. And the disciples, you know, John and Peter, they don't know what to think. But they probably, like her, assumed that somebody had rolled away the stone and they had taken the body. They weren't thinking at all about resurrection. So we need to understand the context of the first century world and Judaism to understand why the resurrection is a big deal. And the second point I want to make about why the resurrection matters so much is it really did happen. So the accounts in the gospel, like I say, are eyewitness accounts. They were written down while the eyewitnesses were still around to be consulted. Uh, for the last hundred years or so, you know, there have been a lot of 
talk and a lot of scholars that have proposed that the Gospels were the result of pieced together anonymous sayings that were kind of floating around for a long time. Maybe you've heard of Q in your New Testament class, right? Well, no one's ever found Q, even though they've been talking about it for over 100 years. What is Q? Q is trying to explain why there's differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's the idea that Mark plus this group of sayings that floated around are what Luke and Matthew were able to draw upon. That, that's kind of the idea, right? Um, but actuality, that, that theory does not really explain the similarities and differences um, as far as like what things are included in one gospel and other gospel very well. And so it's kind of this theory that people are kind of trying to figure out how it makes sense. It doesn't really sufficiently explain the phenomena of what we have in the New Testament. Well, there's a guy, Richard Bauckham, who's a fabulous English New Testament scholar. He wrote a book, came out about 10, 15 years ago now, um, called The Eyewitness Accounts. Um, is that the name? Yeah, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, that's what it's called. It's a fascinating book. Do you know what he does? He, he goes back and he says, well, what, what was the way in the first century um, in the Jewish and the Roman uh, culture for, for, for how you would try to give testimony to something that you believed was true. And, and what he says is it's actually just the opposite of our culture. In our culture, we tend to be more trusting of written accounts than eyewitness accounts. We think if it's written down, it probably is more true. You know, and if it's on the internet, then it has to be true, right? No. <laughs> So we're undergoing a shift even in that, right? No, that we believe that written sources are more careful and more accurate and more to be trusted than eyewitness accounts. We think eyewitness accounts are pretty biased. That's not, now whether that's true or not, lay that aside. The first century believed that eyewitness accounts were more reliable than written sources. They did, and Bauckham proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's not really in dispute if you actually know about first century ideas of evidences and, and those sorts of things. Even in a court of law, eyewitness accounts were way more reliable than written accounts. So here's what he does. He goes through and he says, what's interesting is in this gospel, this story that's also in this gospel over here, well, in this story, the people are named, and in this story, they're just two men did this. Why is that? And here's what he does. He says, you know what's going on? is that if the gospel writer had the opportunity to eyewitness interview, to actually interview an eyewitness, then they write their name down. It's the way that you communicate that this is eyewitness testimony that I'm writing down here. And actually, he's able to go through all the gospels and reconstruct the community that Matthew talked to, that Luke talked to, that John talked to, and that Mark talked to. And it lines up with all the evidence we have from the early church of who was in which area. It's pretty remarkable. Um, so what's the point of all that? The point of that is we have a high degree of confidence about these accounts that they're eyewitness accounts. Because if you understand them in the way the first century wrote and argued for evidence that this really happened, they bear all the marks of that. And they're actually, here's what's interesting, you may not know this, the Gospels are not the earliest accounts we have of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that? The earliest accounts we have 
of the resurrection of Jesus, even liberal scholars will agree, are some of Paul's earliest letters, some of which are within 25 years of the resurrection. So a lot of people are like, well, the Gospels, maybe they're written 50, 60 years later. Yeah, maybe they were. But Paul's letters, his earliest letters, are written within 25 years of the actual events. And here's what's really interesting, is in Paul's letters, 25 years after this accounts, he's got a whole lot of reflection on what the resurrection means and why it matters. He talks a lot about Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. All these sorts of things in Paul's letters, right? Yet when you come to the gospel accounts, written even later than Paul's letters, you don't find any of that theological reflection. What does that mean? What it means is the gospel accounts are sticking to the story the way it happened, even though they're written 20, 25 years after Paul's letters, which show that there was already significant theological reflection. The other thing I point out is that, you know, we've been talking about in the gospels the, how often they'll talk about so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The gospel writers are regularly pointing out to Old Testament passages that are fulfilled by what's happening in the life of Jesus. You know where that disappears? When you get to the resurrection. There's not a single place here that talks about this was according to the scriptures. Now, isn't that interesting? Even though they're writing after Paul has kind of helped reflect on how this connects to the Old Testament, because Paul references Old Testament passages and explaining what's going on. But what here's going on in the gospel accounts, you have them preserving the account in a pristine, unadulterated way. And, and, and that's why you see even details that almost seem to, to push against each other in a way you're like, wait a sec, like he has scars, but yet I guess he has a body, but yet he can walk through walls? Like, what? Well, it doesn't say he walks through walls, but it just leaves you wondering. And, and what I'm saying is, that's what you see that's true of all of the, of the gospel's accounts of the resurrection, is it's filled with these firsthand details that do not bear any of the marks of being kind of worked out or smoothed over. Actually, just the opposite. So what happened? What actually happened? Well, here's one thing. All the gospel accounts agree it was a bodily resurrection, and yet it was full of mysteries, right? Jesus appears as more than just a resuscitated corpse. He's alive, and he's full of life and power. He's not like somebody who maybe was in a coma and then kind of came out of it, right? He still has scars, yet people don't recognize him. Like, what's up with that? Like, again, the story doesn't explain it. It just leaves it fully these mysteries. He's not a ghost. He eats and drinks. He can be touched. He tells Thomas, put your hand in my scars. And yet then he appears in locked rooms and he disappears in an instant. What? John 21, 12, actually the next chapter, says um, that the disciples basically know it's him when he's feeding them breakfast. And they want to question him. The, the word in the Greek there is a rare one that means to scrutinize. They want to like figure out what's going on. But, but they don't know, even know how to, how to ask the questions. 
It, it says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But they're still like confused as heck about what's going on. Like, wait, you were dead. Now you're walking around. Now you're making us breakfast and eating with us. They don't even, they're so freaked out, they don't even ask questions. You get it? All of the accounts agree that it was unexpected and it turned upside down the crushing disappointment that Jesus' followers felt after his execution. You see this in Luke 24, right? You know the story of these two guys that are on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes up, and again, they don't recognize him. And, and he's like, you know, why are you sad? And they're like, what? Are you the only one who doesn't know what happened this week? We thought that Jesus was the Messiah. But then he was crucified. And not only that, like some of, our, some of the disciples are saying that he was raised from the dead. Like, we don't even know what's going on. We're just leaving. And then Jesus begins from the beginning of the Bible all the way through and shows them how all these things make sense of these tantalizing hints that were there in the Old Testament. Their, their faith is turned upside down. Upside down. What does the resurrection mean for us? Well, it proves Jesus was who he said he was. It, there, there's no way to get around the fact that it's the resurrection of Christ that forced these Jewish followers of Jesus to go back to the scriptures and rethink their expectations for who the Messiah would be and what his kingdom would be. And Jesus is the one, of course, that begins this for them. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, he begins with Moses and then all the scriptures to show how they predicted who he was and what he would be and what his kingdom would be like. So Jesus is the one that says, you know, look, you should go back and read the Bible again because I think you didn't quite understand what this was all about. But now that I'm resurrected, now go back and read it again and see if it doesn't look differently to you, right? The resurrection proves that Jesus did what he said he would do when he gave his life as a ransom for many. The fact that he's not still in the grave, the New Testament says over and over again, means that his sacrifice was deemed by God to be all that was needed for sinners to be reconciled. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, says it, it's other places do as well. It says, after he, meaning Jesus, made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he made purification, past tense, and then he sat down at the right hand of God, sitting down because the work is done. Which means we are to be people of the resurrection, people who know that Jesus has done it. When he says, it is finished, like I talked about last week, that's a word that refers to a ritual religious work. He's not saying, okay, I'm done. I just can't, ma I can't make it anymore. That's not what the word it is finished means at all. It's actually one word in the Greek, and it refers to, I have completed the religious task I was called to do. That's what he says as he breathes his last. The resurrection also shows that God is committed to physical reality and to making it whole. You see, Jesus died to do more than just bring forgiveness to people. He came to usher in a kingdom, triumphing over the powers 
and the principalities. Listen to the way Paul says it in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And Hebrews chapter 2 says, triumphing over death itself. And Hebrews says, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus' death and resurrection is about more than just forgiveness of sins. It's about putting death to death. Or as C.S. Lewis says so well, it's about death beginning to work backwards. Right? It ushers in a completely new reality. And that's what, that's what the early Christians are struggling with. They're like, man, I, I remember talking to a, a student who was in the process or maybe had just converted to Islam, and he wanted to ask me about the Trinity. Um, now, I didn't know he converted to Islam. He just told me he wanted to talk about you know, Christianity. And so I was like, all right, he goes, I want to know about the, the Trinity, about the Trinity. Where does this idea come from? It doesn't really make any sense. I was like, well, honestly, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it is a little hard to make sense of. But what you need to understand is the Trinity, the belief in the Trinity does not come from the disciples sitting around and being like, you know, I think God is like this and like this and like this, and somehow they're all God, and so let's formulate this thing and kind of touch it up and get it all just perfectly worked out. That's not where it came from at all. Like, the idea of the Trinity is, like, one of our friends said he was God, and then he died, and then he was resurrected bodily. And that changed everything. Like, we need new categories. I know we believe that God is one. That's the Shema. That's like the thing. The Lord, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. That's like the motto of Israel. How did they go from saying that to Jesus is God and that the Spirit is God? And how can all those be true at the same time? That's what you find. That's where the Trinity comes from. Like, this is true and this is true and we're not exactly sure how to put it together, but we know that you need to put it together in a way that you don't deny that God is one, because that's been the basic thing we've understood forever, but we also have to put it together in a way that we realize that Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, and that's the Trinity. It didn't come because of theological abstraction and philosophizing. It came because this stuff actually happened, and it pushed them to have to create new categories. Has Christianity made you have to create new categories? I wonder, you know, Jesus died for the healing of the physical world. The resurrection shows us that God's commitment to the world he made, and he calls us to that same agenda. The resurrection also puts us on a collision course, a collision path with the world. See, here's the thing. The resurrected Jesus, in John chapter 20, the Doubting Thomas story, which I didn't have time to read, um, finally, when he puts his hand in Jesus' side, you remember what he says? He says, my Lord and my God. Now, in Greek, that's the exact words that Caesar uses to describe himself. So when the resurrected Jesus finally draws forth that confession from Thomas, and when John records that in his gospel, what he's showing is, for all you people who want to follow Jesus, do you understand that he's claiming to be, that he is what Caesar claims to be? And Caesar doesn't take kindly to that. 
If you're going to follow this one and you're going to confess, to confess that he is Lord and God, then you're going to be on a collision course with Caesar. Because Jesus' resurrection declares that he is the Lord of the world and that those who follow him, that's who they follow. See, the Gnostics was this group in the early days of Christianity who believed that, you know, it, it all was about kind of spiritual ideas. They didn't believe that there was a physical resurrection. They believed that Jesus just kind of lived in your heart, that the kingdom of God is just sort of kind of warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart. There's a lot of people that still talk that way today. Oh, don't get so caught up on a bloody tomb and an empty cross. Like that's kind of gross and that stuff is kind of old fashioned. You know, the real heart of Christianity is you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? And just kind of know that God loves you and fills your heart with joy, that kind of stuff. Those kind of beliefs were around in the first century, but you know what? Those people were never persecuted because that kind of Christianity is never a threat to the power structures of this world. The Gnostic idea that Jesus died to take us away from this evil world to heavenly bliss never threatened Caesar or any earthly ruler. No wonder Christians in our day have had so little effect because we tend to think that salvation means being whisked away to a cloud somewhere rather than the revolutionary idea that God has raised Jesus from the dead and said, I am never going to give up on this physical world that I made. That puts you on a collision course with a lot of stuff. It means that you can't just sort of retreat into your little holy enclave and just say, well, as long as me and Jesus are okay, then who cares about all that stuff out there? That's never been real Christianity. Though there have always been people that claim to be Christians that were content with that. But the resurrection of Jesus means you can never be content with that. So, finally, let me just make three points. And these can be maybe your reflection questions if you want to talk about this with your friends or think about this a little more. These are, these are the questions. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, first, without it, the story is incomplete. You can't make sense how you get from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Right? Do we look like those who believe that Jesus finished the work of redemption? Or do we look like those scurrying around making sure we can get enough brownie points with God to get into heaven? Like the resurrection means that Jesus did what was necessary. Do we look like that? Do we look like people who really believed in the finished work of Jesus? Second, do we look like those who believe that God is committed to this physical world? Or we do look like those who are biding our time in this evil world until we finally get to live a blissful, disembodied eternity on a cloud somewhere? It's an important question. The resurrection means that you can't just reduce Christianity to just some kind of warm, fuzzy feelings that make you feel better and help you get through life. That's not what Christianity is about, and the resurrection doesn't make any sense if that's what Christianity is about. And then finally, do we look like those who really believe and have been commissioned to declare that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings to which every knee will bow down one day? Or do we look like those who are content to carve out a little place in this world where we can be safe from unbelievers and all their evil influence? 
It's a good question, and they're worth pondering. Because I don't think all of us in here have got it, and then everybody out there is confused. No, I think these are questions we all need to examine ourselves. The resurrection means that Christianity can never be a little private religious affair. Let's pray together.